the smorgasbord, the online comic book podcast, as opposed to the offline comic book podcast that are out there. I don't know. Maybe what would that even look like? Yeah, smoke signals. Wizard Magazine. <laughs> I am the effable Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I was force-fed 80 billion hamburgers and exploded. I am Sean Edry. Where's that from? That's Booster Gold, baby. I'd say it's a classic, but I've never read it. Well, a few people have. Okay. But then, it's that fits so perfectly. the original Booster Gold, the Jurgens, or... Pre-New 52. Anyway, this comic book podcast is brought to you, as always, by the fine folks at Seekwork. The best online and offline source for comic books, news, reviews, and previews. Mm-hmm. Buy their books, read their articles, listen to their podcasts, like the Smorgasbord. Yes. I think we've already mentioned it, so that's a reclusion. I've heard that they're good. Yes. yes. Where have you heard it? I hear it around. Okay, so... <laughs> uh So last episode, I do just want to start by sort of apologizing, but not really, because what happened was our last episode was recorded... 24 hours before the Phase 3 announcements. The Marvel movie Phase 3. Yeah. Just, just this, so we're clear, we're yeah. not talking about any Phase 3. Well, when I say Phase 3, I'm assuming that anyone listening to this podcast knows what I'm talking about. But uh, uh, we're not going to talk about the Phase 3 movies because, quite frankly, everyone else has already had their turn and we don't like coming in less. But this just goes to show you how hard Marvel is trying to avoid our criticism. Yes, I'm sure that's the only They were reason. waiting for us yeah. to record, and then they're like, yes. okay, they're gone, move, Joe move. Quesada is in his office shaking like yep, a thinking man. about this movie. As well he should. We have some things to say about him. So, shall we start with comics, comics? Let's start with the comics for once. I think okay. that's a good idea. DC? DC has started releasing some details on Convergence, the meaningless buffer they're throwing out while they're moving to Burbank. Those poor fools. But I don't think meaningless what's it's an event it's an event comics. yeah which makes it inherently meaningless if you ask me but that's a different tangent so basically what they've been doing is from the details that they've released so far it looks like they're going for pre-flashpoint because greg rucka has been announced as he's doing renee montoya as a question again stephanie brown is back barbara gordon is back as oracle right she's back in the wheelchair superman is back with lois lane wally west is back I wish I could get excited about this, but there are two things that are bringing me down. First of all, they're interrupting all of their ongoing series for a two-month buffer. I mean, and and this is no secret. Like, the reason that they are putting this event out is just to kill time while they make the move, because they're going cross-country and they're setting up new offices. And in the meantime, this sort of buffer will be running. So nothing that happens in Convergence will have any meaning, especially because it's not the same creative teams. Batgirl, for example, the Cameron Stewart, Brendan Fletcher, and Babstar series that we have been enjoying so much will not be coming out during this period. It's going to be something else entirely. The writer is Alyssa Quitney. I have no idea who that is. And art by Rick Leonardi. And it's not even Batgirl as Barbara Gordon. It's Stephanie Brown. So it's this whole... Age of Apocalypse? Pretty much. You know, and, and I mean... Well, Age of Apocalypse was a good story. I don't, I don't know well, what this looks like. Maybe this one will be a good the, story. That's the other thing that's bringing me down. Okay. They're making this gesture to go pre, pre new fifty two, pre new fifty two, and bring back characters that have not been seen, despite the fact that they had, you know, certain fan appeal. The problem is the fact that characters like Wally West and Stephanie Brown are appearing in basically a throwaway event. Well, Stephanie Brown is already in the new 52. Is she? She's part of Presently Eternal. She's a major part of that. But not as Batgirl. 
not as like Robin or. or... I've only read the first nine issues, and she was there. And Is she were, spoiler? She, they were setting up her, you know, some sort of secret identity. I mm. don't know what. So she's already here. She's kind of, sort of there. Yeah. But these characters, you know, the fact that they're basically being dropped in to, to kill time really shows what DC thinks of them. And that's kind of sad because Wally West deserves a lot better than to be tossed aside. I mean, okay. this this was the flash of the Mark Wade run. Okay, let's... You know? The, the important thing to remember is that as much as you and I both hate what it's doing to the books, mm-hmm. financially, DC seems to be on the ball with these things because remember... Before the New 52 launch, you know, everybody said, that's a disaster. That's a huge disaster coming your way. And the sales spike from that thing were huge. You know, Aquaman outsold the X-Men, which was a joke. It was, it was all short-term, though. Like, well, where are well, they now? Well, this is still selling pretty good. Sure, but they're as not... As far as I know, they even beat, you know, Marvel for the market share a few times, which hasn't happened before <laughs> I I accept that, but I, I think that part of the problem is... We're both old enough to remember what post-crisis, first-crisis DC well, looked I'm like, right? Dead old. You're not that old. Uh, well, I yes, you are. Because I've read, you know, I've read it back issues and stuff. Yeah, but I'm not. I've never been there for a huge continuity turn. Right. And by the time oh, you've never actually seen it happen. Yeah, and by the time okay. it happened to Flashpoint, I didn't care because right. I wasn't. A, <laughs> I wasn't self-defining as a superhero reader or a DC reader. Right. I was self-defining as a comic book reader in general. So as far as I'm concerned, that was just a thing that happened. Okay. A thing that I sort of care about. Because the reason that I brought that up is DC has never been good at closing the book on something. Every time they've had one of these deck clearing uh, crises or, or events that messed with their own continuity, whatever, final crisis, infinite crisis, anything that served to sort of clear the deck one year later was the same way. They always end up going back. They always end up saying, so we're, that whole universe is done, it's over, whatever. Who was the villain of whichever crisis it was that involved Superboy Prime punching the walls? That's it was Superboy Prime. I just gave away the answer. <laughs> but, and, Jeff and, Jones was the villain. Uh, yes, and we were all uh, his victims. Superboy Prime was a character from pre-crisis, right? It was someone who should not have appeared in quote-unquote modern-day DC, and yet they keep going back to the old well. I think... The major problem is, and again, I'm going to quote our favorite quote, Paul O'Brien. DC has that thing where it thinks that the stories that are interesting are stories about the DC universe mm-hmm. as opposed to stories set in the DC universe. Exactly. See, I want to read a good superhero story. I don't want to hear a good superhero encyclopedia entry. Yep. You know, leave that to Roy Thomas, you know, whenever you, you want to bring him back. But don't make it into a thing... The rewriting of your universal history shouldn't be a thing. I'd like to quote one of my favorite quotees, Shirley Bennett from Community, who says, I'm going to paraphrase her, I'm reacting the way people do to comics about making comics about making comics. I mean, come on, Charlie Kaufman, some of us got work in the morning, you know? Yeah. I mean, DC, this has always been, you know, when somebody asks me what is the quintessential difference between DC and Marvel as fictional universes. It is the fact that DC is obsessed with the state of the universe and what does count and what doesn't count and what's in continuity and what's out of continuity and what's out of continuity can be in continuity again. Chris Sims from Comics Alliance Mm -hmm. had a very good point about that. The problem with the DC universe, as opposed to the Marvel universe, is that DC was never planned as a universe. It sort of grew up all those 
separate titles which stood on their own. You know, for a long, long time, you had Batman, you had Superman, you had Green Lantern, and never the twain should meet until right. they had to. The Marvel Universe was created by, you know, mostly half a dozen guys who worked together at the same office sets and created all the characters, not organically together, but they thought of them at the same space. You know, the first issue of the Spider-Man going, it's the Fantastic Four. Right. So it's a lot easier for them, you know, yeah. because the universe but is set. on the one hand, yes, but on the other hand, it's also the fact that Marvel very rarely makes a concentrated effort to play continuity police. Oh, they, if something happens, they? we'll we'll get to that, but if something happens generally speaking that doesn't look good, they just don't talk about it. Like the fact that Tony Stark was originally involved in Vietnam doesn't come up as a talking point anymore for obvious reasons, right? It ages the character significantly. They just sort of the subtly time, paper time it over. Parker, you know, beat his, beat beat his wife, sure. Yeah, yeah, you know, everybody or everybody just one issue later, everybody was just that never happened. Yeah. Two words. Black cat. We could do an entire podcast on how Marvel maligned her, but they're just sort of like, don't, don't go there. And yeah. You have the opposite version in DC. Exactly. Donna Troy. Exactly. Donna, Donna Troy. Troy is it's, okay, we've made a continuity mistake because her origin was that she was Wonder Girl's sidekick, but then mm-hmm. one writer thought, no, she was a young Wonder Woman. And then they tried to explain it instead of simply saying, no, okay, now she's her sidekick or she's right. just a separate character called Wonder Girl. And because they explained it, they had to re-explain it and reinterpret it. And it never... Hawkman. Yeah. I the mean, Hawksner. the Hawk characters are now parodies of what they are because whenever they come up, the first thing you think of is not who they are. It's the entire convoluted continuity mess yeah, that know, never goes away. When, when Brent Morrison was writing his Justice League run, he created Zuriel basically so he could have a wing guy which wasn't Hawkman. <laughs> Who wants to deal with it? I, I can totally sympathize with them. And the JSA 94, I think? Who was it that was Robinson? I think it was Robinson, yeah. Yeah, the whole first arc, it was four issues of trying to explain how Hawkman works. Oh my and sort God. of making it, you know, fit for a new reader, at least, you know, it made sense in their ridiculous story. Yeah, but it didn't stick. No. Somebody else yes. ended up revising it again. And, you know, Marvel, it takes them a while, but eventually they learn to let things drop. Like Zorn, yeah. you know. Zorn. You know, Zorn was a mess, and yeah. so eventually he was dropped. Exactly. I, uh, hopefully we won't get another Zorn. Because they're bringing back Onslaught, so nothing is behind mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah, sometimes they make the decision to dig things up that should have stayed buried. That's certainly true. You but, are, I mean, on the whole, the example that... Oh, okay. okay. So I've got the best example ever yes. of stuff that they don't... Professor Xavier used to be in love with Jean Grey. No, he For that. one issue. Yeah. It was mentioned, like, I think in issue three or four of the original X-Men. And I guess even Stan Lee was like, mm, no. But they did use it. They used it for Onslaught. Well, yeah. Immediately, everyone was like, no, do not want... It doesn't come up anymore as a, a thing that actually happened. Well, because at that point they were still trying to present Professor Xavier as a good person, you know, beset by primal rage. Yeah. And, no, even when they were... And right now, you know, after all the decades from Ancelot, Professor Xavier was basically a supervillain training, erasing memories, having yeah. all teams replaced, keeping secret intelligence as prisoners in his home... Yeah. Although some writers have made that work. I mean, Mike Carey did an amazing job of sort of glossing over all the things that can be, you know, like Professor Xavier's a joke. Did an amazing job of redundancy. It is. I mean, you know, Mike Carey did a job. Mike Carey did a job. The amazing word is 
in the middle. Yeah, it's like, you know... He's the only guy who made the Ascendant following. Yeah. We're following. Well, oh, wait. Oh, see, I was about to object to that and say, no, the Furies was good, too, but he did the Furies, so... Wait, okay, especially which were higher. Huh? That's That's brilliant. Yes. Yeah. And really, if you're looking for a decent successor to Sandman, that would be it. But, so to go back to it, DC, this whole convergence thing is a waste of all of our time. Packaging it as an event, sadly, is going to fool people. It's a two-issue event. And I guarantee you that when they resume operations in Burbank, nothing that happens in Batgirl Convergence is going to influence Gotham by Midnight. Is not Also, tellingly, the new series, stuff like Gotham by Midnight, Arkham Manor, things like that, they have no parallel in the new 52 uh, sorry, the in the old. pre, the old 52, we'll call it. <laughs> and they're not going to be part of this event. So for certain books, it's just like a two-month hiatus, which isn't so bad, except... They just started and they'll lose all their momentum. Yeah. This is not something that DC chose to do. See, for me, that's a good jumping off point. Yeah. Not that I read a lot of things, but, you know, if you're telling me Bad Girl, which I like, is just changing, you know, four issues, five issues after it started, I'm, mm-hmm. okay, so I'm going to stop. It depends on the book. For Bad Girl, I would wait, for example. If I had kept reading Arkham Manor, that would be the point where I quit. For a book that I'm on the fence on, it's more convincing, think, especially with the price. I think for me it's Gotham Academy. Exactly. Yeah, because I still read it, you know, we disagreed on the review. And if they're telling me, well, you're going to have to wait two months for an ongoing... Yeah. If they'll finish an arc... They probably will. It probably will. Yeah. If it will be after the end of an arc, I'm okay with it. Because Image does it all the time. You know, wait two months, start again. And I have no problem with that as a general policy. I always thought that's a better idea than we have to have an issue every month. We have right. To have an issue Not important. Month. We have to, have to, have to. No. You can take a break. I mean, Image Comics are almost always late across the board anyway. And they're all the better for it. Yeah. like I, No writer fill-ins, no interruptions. You don't need it. Why bother yeah, putting is, yourself through you know, it? Because I can only remember one fill-in run that ever actually worked on its own terms. It was during Mark Miller's authority run where the team had been taken down. And then in the middle of that arc, there was another arc written by a different writer that only focused on the new fake authority. That was like the only situation where the fill-ins contributed to yeah, the overall... I just want to say, because both Marvel and DC used to have this pendulum of either we let the writer do whatever he wants and it mm-hmm. can take forever, i.e. Marvel, you know, with Mark Miller on The Ultimate, which had eight months of waiting time... With Ultimate Hulk versus Wolverine. Yes. Three, three years! <laughs> Oh my god. Years for what? I don't even remember what it was. I, I just. And on the other hand, they had that, well, you have to finish all the issues. Now, 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 now. You can't yeah. wait, you can't wait. Work faster, slave. Mm-hmm. Which is. There is. That's what brought down, uh, New X-Men. Is you started getting those artist fill-ins and woo. There is a middle point where you can finish an arc, and if the writer and artist say, well, we can't keep up the quality, we need some time off, you know? Mm-hmm. Two weeks, you know, yeah. let us be late two weeks. You can have skip months. It's also a good thing for readers because, you know, you can tell yourself, okay, you're not spending $4 every month, right? There's an arc and then, like, there's a month where you can breathe and save a little money. It's also, like, a good economic plan, but okay, I don't let's, know. Let's talk Convergence. Marvel. Let's talk Marvel. To hell with it. Marvel. The endless parade of teasers has not ended, but... Oh, it's ended. It's ended. They ended this... Okay, let's get the background here. So Marvel, ever since Jonathan Hickman's Secret Wars was announced, Marvel started releasing teaser images that basically 
called out every single event they have ever published. I mean, what was it? Okay, so there's... Uh, Civil War. Civil War. Marvel Zombies. Marvel Zombies versus Age, Age of Ultron. Ultron. Yeah. I'm not even going to dignify that with a response. Days of Future Past, which has been renamed Years of Future Past for Ultron unclear reasons. They had X-Men 92. That's not even an event! Which is a callback to the 1992 animated X-Men series. When they released that teaser, I was sure that all of a sudden we start seeing like 1987, 1972, 1936. I don't... Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Oh, God. See, oh, I God. prefer Spider-Man and his amazing friends for the X-Men cartoon. None of them age gracefully, but at least, you know, Spider-Man and his amazing friends can be fun. And The, the X-Men cartoon had its moments. It's looking back... I shall now, meet you at the monorail! It's so overly rocked and overdramatic. Yeah. And a lot of the voice acting is terrible. <laughs> it is. Laughably It is. The X-Men 1992... Animated series is a lot like Thundercats in that you remember it, yeah, yeah. watching it as a child as being so awesome, and then you watch it again like with, with adult eyes, and you're like, "Wow, the no!" Thing, yeah, here's the thing. <laughs> no, because a lot of people to this day, adult people, insist to me, "No, it's still good." That's nostalgia talking. And Chris Sims, on, I mean, we we just mentioned yeah. him. He's been doing a rundown of the series, well, and it's really bad. Nostalgic for those things. Like he said. The no. animation is terrible. The yeah, voice acting is terrible. He sort of does. I mean, he has nostalgic goggles for that period in time. No, even he if it's... that period. That's 1990s X-Men. Chris Sims loves 1980s X-Men. He has some affection for the characters, is yeah, what I mean. Okay. He's watching the series as a fan of the X-Men, on some level. It was, at the time, the only non-comics version of well, X-Men. it's also a comedy article, so we got yeah. to exaggerate a lot of the... Angry ranting. For no, it really was that bad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but so anyway, anyway, so 1992. So Secret these, Wars. yes, Secret Wars. So these teasers kept coming out and out and out. I am shocked that they didn't do the Clone Saga. I kept expecting Maximum Carnage to pop up. It's like this Jack in the Box where nothing good is in the box, but they keep turning the key anyway. And finally, they ended it with this teaser that said everything ends spring 2015. And I am not exaggerating when I say that that washed out, whited out, faded out, tired teaser was a perfect example of what I was feeling at the end of this hype train. Because I was like, I am tired. I've had enough. I've had all that I can stand and I can't stand no more. Because it was just exhausting. And through this entire series of teasers, not one word was said about what are we looking at? Like, what is this thing? A version of... The classic secret wars plot of heroes meeting and fighting, only with alternate reality versions of the That's what turned out afterwards. Yeah. This theory started making the rounds that apparently what was going to happen was instead of Battle World being created by the Beyonder or whatever, it was going to be this shared space with all of these alternate realities converging in one place. That sounds completely unappealing to me. Well... It's very appealing if you're a 12 and 13 year old because that would be, oh my god, all those things that I like are meeting together. You know, that, that mindset of a child of, oh my god, it's ice cream and chocolate and fudge and vanilla, everything together. I am trying to imagine, that that's the thinking, right? That would be the, yeah. the sort of modus operandi for this thing. But I'm trying to imagine like a 12 year old, 13 year old reader who read Civil War at the time it was coming out. No. To then say, it's coming back awesome. Again, we're and in Secret War, like the original Secret Wars, is nineteen eighties something, yeah, right? Nineteen eighty six. Who? I mean, why? Who? Who asked for this? I, when they first announced that Hickman was doing Secret Wars specifically, I was like, "Look, I'm not going to read it. 
I've been through it one time, don't need to see it again. But, you know, okay, fine, let him have it, right? It didn't seem like such a big deal for me. It kept on going, and none of these teasers, if they are, in fact, components of Secret Wars, none of them had me going, the event is coming back, right? Yay, awesome! Age of Ultron? Are we really looking forward to a return of that? Days of Future Past in the X-Men comics themselves have come back so many times, I don't even want to see it again. What is the event? we're, We're not kids. I read Age of Apocalypse. I was 14, 15 years old. I loved it. To this day, it remains one of my favorite events. I don't want it back because I've already seen it come back twice. You've already seen it. These kids haven't. But then where's the nostalgia value? It's a nostalgia thing for some adults. It's, you know, smash them up for most kids. I worked at a local comic book store during the latest Halloween fest. I helped out some friends. Mm -hmm. And... It was a small version of Free Comic Book Day, and you know, the, all the publishers sent them some issues. And what Marvel sent was a reprint of Secret Wars number one. The original Secret yeah, Wars. Oh, that okay. was the first thing to run out. That's what the kids wanted. Because they don't care about, you know, history, and they don't care that the drawings are very different from today's style. All they see is, oh my god, it's all the things that I like together. So the problem with this is, if you're doing that, why would you take Jonathan Hickman? No, Hickman's an appropriate pick for this. He's a bit too cold and analytical. Hickman is basically the Nolan of comics. Yes, but even Christopher well, Nolan. No. Well, Nolan did the Dark Knight, one of the most successful movies ever, so exactly. maybe I'm wrong. No, he, I'm wrong, not me. Because, no, but also when you think about Secret Wars, the storyline, it wasn't some shiny, happy, you know, let's let's have fun. It was basically That's like... That's shooter, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it wasn't super happy, fun times. It was like... Doctor Doom took over something. Yeah, I can't even remember. It was it was just it was awful. I think he stole the Beyonder's powers. Probably yeah. that seems like the sort of thing he would do. It just it wasn't fun. And okay, so before this podcast, Tom, I asked you to look at an Adult Swim viral video called "Too Many Cooks." Yes, I apologize for that. First of all, I liked it. I also apologize to our listeners because you know I'm going to ask you to take 11 minutes out of your life and go watch this video. It is. Not say four, by the way, if you're doing it. No, 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 it is not. But the reason that I bring it up in the context of comics is because when I got to the end of that video, and it took me a minute or two to be like, huh, so that just happened. The first thing that came to mind was, this is a perfect metaphor for Marvel. Too many cooks for those of you who haven't seen it. The uninitiated, as we called it. Oh, boy. It's basically a parody video of the 1980s sitcoms and intro types where you start out with sort of a very typical cutesy family sitcom scenario and then it keeps going. You know, a minute, two minute passes, more characters are introduced, the family keeps getting bigger and bigger and, and bigger the and bigger. It changes slightly, then quickly, then yep. it starts off as a comedy and then it becomes, uh, no, family comedy, then more yeah. comedy, then mm-hmm. uh, police black comedy. Family sitcom, then yep. police. Then G.I. Joe. And after the G.I. Joe part, they start to do like a Dallas intro or like a Dynasty intro. And that's when it starts very slowly going off the rails and going completely insane. Until finally, like it ends at a point that no longer makes any sense. This has degenerated so far that it doesn't look like anything at all. Okay. That is Marvel. That is what they're doing with the Secret War thing. Like they've been doing more of what they already did for so long now. That when I look at it, I don't, I feel absolutely no desire to read this stuff because it's I disagree. more and more and more. See, I disagree. I think that's DC. Because Marvel, you know, they're doing it more and more, but I think they have complete control. 
and they're doing exactly what they want, and they get the results they want. So it, far. I don't know. DC I... seems to me always in the state of seat of their pants writing. What? No. What should we do? What should we do? do? DC doesn't do very well at planning ahead. That's true. But to their credit, and I don't say this often, but to their credit, they do seem to be consciously trying to do new things, even though their attempts to do these new things fall flat, right? You look at something like Gotham Academy, Arkham Manor, the new Batgirl, other series. Sensation comics featuring Wonder Woman. All of that. Everything that they're doing, they're consciously trying to break away from pre-established patterns and do new things. Whether these new things work or not is a different matter. That's also to do with having a lack of foresight. Marvel just seems to keep going like Secret Wars again. And you know what? It's not like those original stories aren't out there in some format. If Secret Wars had been out of print and no one had seen it for 30 years and now it was coming back, I'd be like, okay, that's at least one reason, one way to justify its existence is to say, okay, fine, nobody's seen it. Pretty much everything Marvel has ever published is either on their website digitally or on Comixology or in some trade or other because Marvel's trade program is not bad. They make a conscious effort to collect a lot of things that would interest readers, these kids that took Secret Wars number one, enjoyed it. Give them Secret Wars 1980s. No but problem. You can't sell this to them issue by issue. Why not? You can't reprint it. Why not? Series. Classic X-Men used to reprint Claremont's run because back then there were no... Yeah, but now we have trades. We'll sell buy, them the trade. We'll buy single reprints of single Why issues. Why do you need to sell reprints of single issues? Sell the trade. You know, but put Secret single, Wars back in print. As we've discussed, single issues make to the publisher more money. So do a reprint. Do a reprint series. Because enough time has passed. Well, okay, I would say do a reprint issue. Again, my my problem here is that the original Secret Wars, if you legitimately wanted to read it, you could go to Marvel's website and buy the issues. Yeah. I'm like 90% sure that it's there. Well, I think they're just using the name as a general nostalgia buffer for right. adults and the general plot as appeal for the kids. Whether it will work, I don't know. I'm not interested. You're not interested. And we're probably going to talk about the first issue just... I guess so. I mean, I'm not looking forward I'm to the prospect excited, of reviewing it. I'm not as excited for that as I am for the Angry Birds Transformers. Program. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of that, we bring us to our third news item. Yes, IDW. IDW. IDW has signed a deal with Thrillbent. Mark Wade's Thrillbent. Mark Wade's yeah. Thrillbent to bring their digital comics to print. For those of you who don't know, Thrillbent is a digital platform. I think it's run by Mark Wade. They're hosting all of these exclusive web comics, and some of them are actually pretty damn good. Wade has two series there, Insufferable, and he brought back Empire. Now he's doing a sequel to Empire. John Rogers has Arcanum. Joffrey Thorne has Prodigal. James Tinian IV has The Eighth Seal. There's some pretty good material okay. there. However... However, however, the schedules for Thrillbent in terms of digital publication have been ridiculous. Mark Wade put out this blog post that it made me laugh about how it's all about workflow and they're diligent about updates, especially since Thrillbent is now on a subscription model. So you have to pay to read these comics. It wasn't at first. They offered their material for free, and then at some point it became... Like any good popular, yeah. yeah, sure, subscription only. The problem is Mark Wade was selling it as, you know, these were all planned breaks. His series, Insufferable, went on hiatus for an entire year. They came back, I think, two or three days ago. After a year-long hiatus, nobody plans a year-long hiatus. Even webcomics. Even in webcomics where people how, are used to how delays. How of Bendet have been published over the last three years? That's different though. Bendet isn't being published primarily digitally. Yes, it's, it is. It's being, no, it's being printed. 
There yeah, was it's, a... It's, it's printed, but not an issue. It's a digital only, and it was printed F only after the first arc was completed. Dark Horse Prince and was Monkey it? Brain, it's a Oh, Monkey okay, because I was introduced to that through the trade, so yeah, I guess... Yeah, so was I, you know. Ah, so... And it, it's incredibly, you know, late, and I don't care because it's so good. That it is. I don't care. It is, but... But, Even yeah. Bandette doesn't go on break for a year. And more to the point, Bandette doesn't force you to subscribe on a yearly basis. Wait, so you're paying by issue or you're paying... No, I think you're uh, paying by time. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's, you know... That's, that's a problem because then entire months go by where you don't get anything. No, so... Yeah, if you have to pay and you get nothing for it. Yeah, it's, I think it's a one-time payment for like an entire year or something like that. But, you know, you're yeah. paying for periods of time in which nothing's coming out. Yeah. If, for example, you had a year-long subscription and you subscribed to Thrillbent for Insufferable, you'd be pretty damn disappointed because your subscription would run out just as the series came back. Yeah, that's... That's bad business practice. And now, and these are good comics, and I hate criticizing them, but that is what's happening. And to make things worse, now they partnered up with IDW to bring these comics to print. And the reason I say this is worse is because Thrillbent had as its motto, and I'm quoting here, Mark Wade, to challenge 75 years' worth of accepted rules about what comics are and aren't. Is there a shortage of print comics that I didn't notice? I mean, <laughs> how is that challenging anything? First of all, they, they force people to subscribe to their website, even if they're only interested in one comic. I think that actually makes them worse, because for Marvel or DC or whatever, you can subscribe to individual issues. Thrillbent, you subscribe to the website, even if you're only interested in one comic in that entire array. Which, again, they have plenty of good stuff, but... It's like having a membership card in your local cinema tech. You know, you, you, can, you can never know in advance when you'll get some good stuff, but you're there for the... Yeah, but if you bought a subscription... Again, you don't have to buy you know, all the tickets in advance. If you bought a subscription to a cinema and you, in the course of an entire year, only went to one movie, would you not feel dumb? Yes. You'd feel like you wasted money. Yes. Because you could have just bought tickets for that specific movie. And yeah, obviously you can't foresee what's going to happen, but that's exactly the point. So like, they just need to add the option of, you know, do a monthly subscription per target. It doesn't seem like such a, you know, big deal. It doesn't. Maybe I mean, that's should, how everybody else maybe operates. Maybe someone should ask them. Did somebody just ask Mark Wade online, can you please add that option? I'm only interested in two of your titles. I'm sure someone again. has, but the problem... No, see, that's what I'm sure someone has. Is, right. It's responsibility buffer. It's... Well, someone ha must have done it, and he probably said, no, that bastard. No, because they're marketing this as deliberately trying to do things differently from the accepted mode of publishing. And it's true that they do, but unfortunately, the mode that they have chosen is even worse than what we already have. Okay. So, too bad, as, as for you know. Prints, Good I for IDW, although now that I think about it, I have no idea what it would look like, because these are comics that are designed for, for digital, digital their landscape size. All of them? You know, well, I, I you think can, all of them. Well, you can always print landscape. You know, there have been landscape comics. If 300 was printed, yeah, paperback. that's true. Uh, War in Toyland, Joe Harris was also, yeah. you said, landscape. It's, if that's the only thing, that's not a problem. I guess. Oh, it's just weird that they're partnering, like, they're going back to print. The point of this was not to do yeah, print. The, no, the problem is it's not really experimental if you can actually print it. Right, because and it's not exclusive either. Real, real experimental digital comics probably won't fit on the page in any way, shape, or no. form. No. I'm also, there's Scott a lot McLeod's of clouds had some of those original. Yeah. He had some of Zot. Mm -hmm. Zot. So the first Zot that I saw was on a web page, and it's unprintable because it's yeah. 
one panel and then a long, 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 long line yeah. to the next. And then several Rich, smaller panels. Rich Burley's Order of the Stick had that same problem. Like He prints trade paperbacks of collected strips of Order of the Stick, which is a fantastic webcomic, yeah. by the way. But there's speaking of late things. Well, again, with him, I can forgive it. But there's that strip where Roy is falling. Yeah, one of the main characters falling forever. Right, falling, and it's like this long, 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 long vertical panel that ends with him hitting the ground. In the book, he had to cut that up to page size. Have you read the book? Right yes. The you basically you turn the page, and it's like you know going down, going yeah. down, going down, going down. It does sort of simulate that feeling, but it's not that. Yeah. Again, uh, you know, another good web example, uh, XKCD. Yep. The original strips were mostly just one joke pages, but when it got bolder and more progressive, you know, stuff like time mm-hmm. or the, what was the really huge one called? One was like 10 meter size. I don't remember. Uh, I know scale, what you're talking about. Scale, something like that. You know, these things are unprintable, literally, right. because it's not in the size of the page. It was painted with so many details. Yeah. To be, you know, How would you do it? Like what? A fold out? Something like that? Yeah, that won't work. No. Or the one where you have to, you know, zoom in on every panel and every time you zoom in there was something else inside it. That's, again, unprintable. Literally unprintable. Yeah. And compared I... to that, you know, Thrillbent appears Thrillbent to be is more, well, because... It's a different model for pre-print comics. Because the creators work in print comics. Like, you know, yeah. who's Mark Wade? Who's James Tinian? Who's yeah, James, uh, John and Rogers? It's yeah. It's, it's fine, fine. But, admittedly, I would now it's not advise. The that you, that no, but also I would now advise readers not to go to Thrillbent and instead subscribe to the series through IDW because at least then you can get specifically the series that you want. Also, it's IDW, so it probably look good. Yeah, yeah, quite frankly, they can use like new properties. I mean, IDW is angry, never short on angry, properties. Angry Birds and Transformers. Whew. Hashtag Doom Lives. <laughs> We promised ourselves no movie news, but then that thing came out. I mean, how can you not talk about it? Yeah. You want to take this one? Cause uh, <laughs> I'm not even that big of a Fantastic Four fan. I don't... Okay, so in the pre-interviews for the Fantastic Four movie, yeah. the new Fantastic... We should specify, this interview is, I think, the first thing anyone has heard about this movie for, like, forever. Yeah. I assume that they're filming on the moon or something, because there have been no... There's no publicity shots. There's no... There were images, I think, last week of Henry Cavill hanging in midair. Henry Cavill? Superman. Okay. Because ah, they're yeah. filming Batman v... The People v. Superman yeah. uh, uh, Supreme Court case. And he is just hovering in midair carrying Amy Adams in his arms. For a movie that isn't coming out until what? Next year? The year after? And the one thing we saw from the Fantastic Four movie was someone made a bus. Out of the thing's head design. And yeah. Not even showing the design. A bust of the head. Okay. I am... I don't get it. Okay, so, so go. What happened is... Doctor Doom. The classic Marvel villain. Mm-hmm. Victor Von Doom. That's his name. Yep. Not yes. Van Damme Warren Ellis. Or movie guys. Whoever did the original movie. Or it was also Van Damme. He was also Van Damme in the original movie? Yeah, yeah. Uh... Anyway, uh, he will be played by someone called Toby Kebbell. Who, who is know. a good actor. Where, where is he? Uh, he was in Black Mirror, the BBC oh, okay. miniseries, and yeah. he was pretty good. Okay, yeah. Anyway, he plays the film version of Doctor Doom. Here we and go. Here's the quote. Oh, God. The only thing I can tease you about is what I worked on most was the voice, because nobody, even in the cartoon when I was watching, where is this from? So there's this big change. He's Victor Domshev, not Victor Von Doom in our story, and I'm sure I'll be sent for jail for telling you that. The Doom in ours, I'm a programmer. 
very anti-social programmer, and on blogging sites, I'm, quote, Doom, unquote, the end. So, Dr. Doom is an angry blogger. Words fail me. No, they don't, because I'm going to say some words. That's a bad idea. That's a bad, bad idea, because... Here's I'm running through every swear in my mind trying to see if there's a filter that I can actually say on a PG-13 <laughs> podcast. Nothing's coming to mind. Okay. I'll just be silent it's now. The, it's the classic pre-Marvel comic book movie problem of producers thinking they know better than the creators of the comics. And sometimes they do, but when they're, the thinking is, I'll take this incredibly popular, known character that's been famous for what it is for... 70? No. No, not 50, that much. 50 yeah, years. 50 years. 50 years now. And I'm going to reinvent it completely because I know better than Stanley, Jack Kirby, John Byrne, Mark Wade, Walter Simonson, Jonathan Hickman, McDuffie. I know better than all of those people because I'm a Hollywood producer guy. Please bring me some cocaine. I am willing to accept the unlikely possibility that maybe contemporary Hollywood writers are capable of contributing something that is new and that works in the context of the story. Case in point, Peggy Carter. Joe Simon wishes he had written her as well. That's yeah, that's and, fine. And I'm willing to take that as, as good. in some cases, in a lot of cases, you know, change is good. You know, yes. The version of Guardians of the Galaxy, Yandautu? What's, what's Yandu. Yandu. Yeah. <laughs> no relevance whatsoever to the comic book version. And but he was great. Because it's Yandu. Yeah. A, because it was great, and B, because it was Yandu. Even their Star Lord was sort of the same thing, but it not was really. Yeah, yeah, because it was more of a swaggering post-time solo guy rather than a straightforward space. Exactly, guy. I can say yes. There Change are situations. Change is okay. Change is okay, and contributing new ideas isn't always such a bad thing. But just Doctor Doom as a blogger, really, really, really. So Doctor Doom. Okay, sometimes. I'm, I'm trying not to scream. I really am. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes, even the writers can go wrong. I brought up Warren Ellis, right? His version of Doom was ridiculous. Re- do- ultimate, yeah. ultimate Doctor Doom with the donkey legs. Okay. That was a situation where it didn't work. Mark Wade's attempt, like, he recontextualized Doom as a sorceress enemy instead of a technological enemy during his run with the uh, Waringo. People weren't crazy about it. I loved it. I thought it was great. Even the movie... The version of him, yeah, like Julian McMahon as like, you know, this businessman who becomes techno-organic, whatever. Not great, but still had some elements that you could be like, okay, close enough. And I mean, he's appeared in a whole bunch of cinematic projects as one of the greatest villains in the Marvel Universe. He's been voiced by Simon Templeman. He's been voiced by, you know, actors who really make him sound like a genuine threat. And here comes... And again, like, Tony Kebbell isn't a bad actor. He's a pretty good actor, but Dr. Doom, as an angry blogger... Who's not called Doom. Whose online handle is apparently Doom. Why? Why? I don't understand why. Please explain to me why. And and there were a lot of rumors uh, from the movie about radical changes, like... How Johnny Storm is oh, shooting God. a container all the time because he might burn himself or stuff like that. I respect the impulse to do things differently, but if you're going to do things differently, commit. Some of the rumors that were going around about this movie was, I mean, when they announced that Johnny Storm would be black, I said, fantastic. 
Not a problem. But it's, why is he? It's a good way to spot racist people. It is. I mean, you know, the people who flip out are the people you unfriend on Facebook. Yeah, because yes. Because, see, those people. And are he's very, a good actor. Yeah, those people are very angry because they changed the character from the comics, and you shouldn't do it. Like, for instance, could you imagine how terrible it would have been if Wolverine would have been played by a tall, muscular, handsome actor instead of you know being yeah. a short, mm-hmm. ugly guy like in the how comics? tragic. You know, people would hate it if they changed that. I was sitting in an audience. That was predominantly female during Days of Future Past. And when they had that ass shot, there were women sitting in the audience going like, ah! So clearly, it worked out for them. But, so you make the decision to make the Human Torch black. Awesome. I think that's really great. Why is his sister not black too? Why not cast an African-American actress to play Susan Storm? Why not? It would have been a great way to be like, okay, so... He's not like a token African-American character because his sister is... And I mean, I can think off the top of my head of at least 10 actresses who would have been amazing as Sue Storm. You know, Samira Wiley from Orange is the New Black. Hell, you could even go a little older, you know, get like some of... I mean, actors are out there. And you make a decision, but you don't go all the way. And that's a problem. They were talk. There were rumors before Tony Kebbell was confirmed as Victor Von Doom or huh, Victor Domashev that's going to happen there were rumors that they were thinking of gender swapping him that it would be like a female doom which i think could have been brilliant because it would have put the rivalry with reed richards in a completely different light yeah but would you really like the implication of a female very jealous of a male scientist because he's smarter than her yes really yes because they could have played that angle as you know she's not jealous of him because he's with sue she's jealous of him because He's smarter than her. And that pisses her off. I can see that. Like, it's the sort of thing where you could play Doom's usual swagger and and confidence and his absolute certainty that he's right and everyone else is wrong. And you can transfer that to a female, because there aren't a lot of female villains who are depicted as that. Usually it has to do with, like, you know, she's in love with the main hero. Wait, wait, you imagine Doom as Brita from Community? As a competent Brita from community, <laughs> maybe. Really, could have been played by Alison Williams. I, I would have been okay with that. But anyway, yeah, fantasy so, casting so, aside. Fantasy casting aside. <laughs> the issue is they don't go far enough. And when they do, Victor Von Doom as a blogger. Why? Why? Not even why, but I mean... And poor Josh Trunk. People had hope for him, but this movie will destroy him. The fact that so little has been shown of this movie... Less than a year before the release. It's not a good sign because it indicates that Fox doesn't have faith in this movie. And Fox puts out, like, really bad movies without any awareness at all that they're crap. So if even they are saying, yeah, this this isn't going to work... I watched Chronicle. I liked Chronicle a lot. Josh Trank seemed to have really good ideas as a director, as a writer. Bits of information that have been coming out... Not one of them has made me go, hmm, I'll see that movie. Yeah, lo-fi, down-to-earth, Fantastic Four, that's the complete opposite of what you need. Yeah, why would you do... high-concept, high-minded superhero stories ever. If you took this movie, scratched out the names, don't have it be Fantastic Four, have it be an original superhero movie, it would probably be better received. You know what it is? It's Unstable Molecule. It's Fantastic Four Unstable Molecules. Even Unstable Molecules didn't go this far, though. Unstable Molecules might have started them on that path, but this is beyond the pale. The idea that their superpowers are disabilities and... No, no, wait. It's not Unstable Molecules. It's the Venture Brothers version. Ooh! (laughs) What what would you call it? 
I know what you mean, but I, I'm blanking out on the, oh god. Wow, that it is. It really is. Well, the Venture Brothers creators can sue them off and get some money, maybe, so that's good. Because more money for the Venture Brothers creators is always good. Be completely honest with me, Tom. Are you gonna go see this movie? No. I'm not. And like you said, we haven't seen anything. Maybe if there's a preview coming out in some it's like, whoa, maybe, but. Not even then. I'm trying to think like the sum of all knowledge that I have about this movie is minimal. But what I do know is actively pushing me See, away. Okay, but here's the thing. I don't have an emotional attachment to the Fantastic Four. I like some stories. I don't have an emotional attachment. So, like we talked a few weeks ago about... No, last week. Yeah. About Constantine, where, <laughs> where I could enjoy the Keanu Reeves movie for what it was without right. thinking for a second about the Hellblazer comics. If, but you said that part of the issue there is you have to imagine that Keanu Reeves' character isn't John Constantine. If he is someone else and has no connection, that's fine. I but here... for that version of the Fantastic Four. If it's good, I wouldn't care. If it's bad, I would care. But right. I would care that it's bad. It doesn't seem... There is no rhyme or reason for that. Right. Why? Like The, the kinds Why of changes but... that they're making aren't about improving the story. They just seem to be arbitrary. They're about, okay, Josh Trump has a story to tell that's not a Fantastic Four story, but he has to do a Fantastic Four movie, so he takes his general ideas and sort of pushes them into Fantastic Four slots. Yeah, but by doing that, he's going to actively drive away the audience that Fox is trying to bring in. Well... It's it's a mess. It's yeah. a real mess, and okay, I don't... Let's finish on good news. Yes, we do have some good news today. Okay, because Bleeding Cool has announced, and I'm trusting that even though it's Bleeding yeah. Cool. Yes, Rich Johnson... We're counting on you to be accurate for once. Uh, Please don't let us down. Sometime next year, we're going to get the omnibus of Christopher Priest's Black Panther run. It's about damn time. Over a decade after it's finished. Mm -hmm. yes. yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. It has been a decade. Yeah, 2003. Okay. I started reading that, that run, but I didn't get very far because I didn't have yeah, the it, issues. It, it was about seven years ago they reprinted the first arc, the first six yeah. issues, and that's that was it. it. Now, Christopher Priest's Black Panther was... Have you read the whole thing? I read half of the thing, because I okay. only had the second half. Oh, no! <laughs> yeah, but I could, I could gather all the information from the internet. Oh, okay. okay. That, all right. That was one of my first uh, long box mm. from American comics. Okay. The first thing that I was actually attached to. So I have sort of a hope for that, and maybe a nostalgic exaggeration of how good it was. But Christopher Priest's Black Panther was superhero politics. Yes. And interesting, well thought out superhero politics. Because he took the idea of this guy isn't just a superhero. He's a king, and he's a corporate, you know, owner, and he's a technologic inventor, and he ran with it. Yeah. It wasn't just the guy, you know, sometimes has soldiers and sometimes have a cool suit of armor. No. And it wasn't Reginald Hudland either. So. Okay, yeah. The Reginald <laughs> I assume we're going to have to get an omnibus of that also. They'll print it. I doubt they'd bother. Because... Okay, I'm under no illusions that the reason they're printing this omnibus is because of the movie. That's No, it's because of the movie. Yeah, that's what I said. It's like, not because they suddenly like Christopher Priest yeah, again. It's definitely because of the movie. That that's that's what yeah. I'm saying. So if they want a canonical version of Black Panther in terms of the text, I have a really hard time believing that they would prefer like they would put Reginald Hudland on the same shelf as Christopher Priest because you could not find two more different perspectives on the same character. And quite frankly, Priest is better. 
I mean, Hudlin's run was awful. Awful. And that was the run that destroyed Storm. That turned her into, you know, Mrs. Black Panther. Yeah, Hudlin seemed to be under the weird impression that the Black Panther is African-American instead of an African character. Yeah. And someone from a unique culture, from a unique background, that brings a wealth of ideas and notions into it. Yeah. He seems to miss that. because How do they market his run for the hip-hop faithful? Well, that's not his fault. That's white guys marketing yeah. know, a black writer. That's... That was unfortunate. But, <laughs> yeah, a but lot of things about that run were Christopher Priest's Omnibus, I'm going to buy this if it exists. Yeah. Like, if it's out, I'm, I'm getting it. Because yeah, that, that's high quality. That's one of those runs and, where... You know, maybe Christopher Priest, you know, after that one and after the reprint of his Quantum and Woody, maybe he'll come back to and write some actual comics. Because Isn't he... He's at Valiant now, I yeah, think. Yeah, he's doing a sort of a sequel to his Quantum and Woody run. Yeah. You know, I'd like to see some more original stuff from him because the problem with Christopher Priest as a writer, he was a modern image writer before there was a modern image, so he had no place right. to sell his wares. As it, yeah. As Black Panther... I wasn't around at the time that it was coming out, so I don't remember how it was perceived. It but was, today, it was for example, one of those things that was the comics internet liked it. People outside the comics internet didn't bother. So right. It was, it was a medium-sized seller, and that because was, when you look at how it's referred to today, that's the canonical Black Panther. People are willing well, to disregard everything you else. You don't have a lot of other things. You have the original character. Yeah. Jack Kirby was. You know, strange adventures type of thing. Problematic. You had the jungle action, the Panthers. Rage. Even more problematic. Woo. Apparently, the mo- the biggest problem is the purple prose because it's seventies Marvel. The way that it would play out today is there's an issue of I'm not going to say racism because that's not what it is, but more racial stereotypes that are born of. Ignorance? Not prejudice, but ignorance, exactly. Like, it's not that they were sitting there going, well, let's well, make them, like, you know, tribal African, yeah, whatever. And I'd argue that the original story used those stereotypes well because it turned them upon their head, you know, because they... Not come, really. They, no, they come to Wakanda and the thing is like, oh, the, you know, I've seen this in Tarzan movies, I know yeah. really what to expect, and then suddenly, boom, technology, boom, they're surprised and sh- But in, and in the original and, story... And, and the guy that saves them, because the original story is, you know, the... Black Panther captures the Fantastic Four. Yes. And who saves them? Wyatt Wingfoot. Right. Johnny Storm's Native American friend. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's modern. Sorry, that's not at all racist or even the, the, ignorant racist, as far as I'm concerned. The issue is more that it's... Like, the imagery. The imagery there is specifically associated with stereotypes that are... You know, again, it's Chris Claremont trying to write an African woman. On the one hand... I'll be grateful to Claremont for Storm yeah, like again, in perpetuity. Again, but history. on the other hand, it's like you do have to acknowledge that they were writing about Africa as if it were... Again, Priest didn't discard it. Priest no. used it. He had... Uh... But he was actively working against it. No, no, no. no. I think he... he was using it because that's the great thing. Towards the end of his run, he used a Jack Kirby invention, the Time Frogs, <laughs> which, <laughs> which could bring warriors from different versions in time. And he brought his Black Panther to meet the old Black Panther. And the Kirby version came up on top. He was written as yeah, you know, but... the better person, as, yeah. as the better warrior, as the better king. As the one everybody liked. Priest Black Panther is skulking in the shadow and the Kirby's version is like, oh, oh, bring, come to me, let right. us party. And, then, and everybody liked him. I think 
I think he used it well and not working against it, working to build upon it. I, I'm not accusing them of actively using problematic imagery. I'm just saying that this is one of the questions that's probably going to come up with the Marvel cinematic version too. Like if you're putting Black Panther in a movie, you really don't want to go with Kunta Kinte. That's not, it's like on the one hand, historical accuracy, but on the other hand, no. Have you ever seen that actor in anything? It's the guy Boseman. who plays Charles Boseman, I think. Chadwick Boseman. Chadwick, yes. He was um, in 42. No. no and he I... was in Draft Day, so that's yeah. two sport movies. From what I've heard in terms of people who are familiar with him and have seen him in previous movies, he's a good actor. I would have personally preferred Idris, Idris Elba. But Idris Elba is Heimdall, and, and that's fine too. You no, know? that's not. He Why? He's in a better Black Panther. I want him in a main Yeah, role. but, well, okay, so they didn't think that they'd have a Black Panther movie, but. Who's uh, the guy from Serenity? Chipwell Agnifor? Yes. He, he, oh, he would. He would have been excellent. He would have. Wait, I'm more used to Korf seeing him as a villain, though. Korf, who played Korf the Pursuer? Didn't he also play. I don't know. I think he played Korf the Pursuer in Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, that's not. No, that's, Digi- uh, uh, oh, that's Digimon, Digimon Hansu. Yeah. Uh, could also have been very good. No. Yes, no. Yes. No. See, Chiwell Chiwell Ejiofor has the gravitas. Absolutely. He has that presence. Yes. Digimon Hansu, not so much. Okay. But on the other hand, like. Okay, I, again, you guys, you guys, it, no. it's going back to that issue where we were talking yeah. about the Doctor Strange Marvel film. We said, Marvel makes good casting choices. Yeah. We can so we'll give it a shot. For that and yeah. We'll be happy because even if the movie would be bad, we'll still get the Christopher Priest only was from that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, although, again, like, I, I think the movie. So, okay. I think we've talked enough news. Let's yeah. talk comics. Comics! So what shall we start? Uh, let's start with Tooth and Claw. Okay. okay. Yeah. Tooth and Claw. Written by Kurt Busiek. Drawn by Ben Dewey with with colors by Jodie Belair. The mm. ever-present Jodie Belair. He really is everywhere. She's like Charles Soleil too. <laughs> what if she and Charles Soleil teamed up on a book? Wow. I, I assume that statistically they're already on a book together. It, it would reach issue 900 by actually having 900 issues. That would be quite a thing. So this is a new number one from Image. Yeah. You know, God bless him, Image. He's so trying new stuff. I really like this. I'm a bit at odds, but I think I'm overall liking it. Uh, do you want to start with the plot? Sure. So this is a fantasy uh, story. It's yes. very clear from the very first page. We have these 17 floating cities that are hovering ab- above this world. And the inhabitants of these cities are magicians, wizard types. And they're all animal hybrids. By which I mean they have the body of humanoids. Yeah, you know, but with animal faces and really the artwork, Ben Dewey's art here, in terms of the detail of the animal faces, is really, really good. The major crisis that's introduced in in the first issue is that magic is fading for unknown reasons. And this sort of rogue sorceress figure decides that she's going to bring back the hero who restored magic to the world originally. And I'm going to spoil this because... No, 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 let's not spoil it. Okay, so I'm not, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna spoil specific things, but I am gonna say that the identity of this hero is never revealed. Yeah. But, what we do see recontextualizes the story, because you start off by thinking that it is a completely different world, right? It's some fantasy environment. We're introduced to like the different, the main protagonist is, is a dog. A, a humanoid dog. Who is the classic chord music protagonist, because you know, he has this father relation thing. Yeah, he's, he's the son, sliver. right? He's the inexperienced he's, son. He's the inexperienced son. He's nice, but he has some sort of a jerkish 
Unintentionally. Unintentionally. Unintentionally, yeah. because he needs to learn, he needs to know better. Mm-hmm. And he wants to do good, and he also wants to sort of grow famous. So he's basically the kid from Esther's Confession. Yeah. And the kid from Shock Rockets. Exactly. And the kid from uh, Aerosmith. If it and works, keep doing it. That's the Kurt Music protagonist. It's the Kurt Music protagonist, and it very rarely fails. Confessions was an amazing arc, yeah. right? This is something that Music understands very well. If you're introducing a protagonist, you need the readers to at least have some kind of interest in what happens to them. And the most interesting for me about this issue is the small details that sort of slip by through the generic fantasy world. Because mm-hmm. when you have, again, the main protagonist doing his prayer for the gods, it's sort of, you know, the goddess of health. <laughs> and yeah. then it's the goddess of health, education, and welfare. Mm-hmm. And the two-headed goddess of housing and of urban development. Yep. These hints are building towards one of the big revelations at the end of the issue that I'm not going to spoil, but it does the suggest God of Homeland Security, the God okay. of Homeland Security. You know, that's 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 ding ding. When you read that, you know what they're talking about. Like you know what music's aiming for, and I like it. I like that direction very much. I do tend to favor stories that make you think you understand the world, and then pull the rug out from under you, and Busick did a really good job with this one. Yeah, also, this issue is 48 pages, yep. $3, at good price. There's a lot of stuff going on in this issue. The problems that I had with it is that it makes a lot of interesting noises, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, it's a bit too obvious with a lot of things, because... In what uh, way? The first half is mostly about the class struggle, mm-hmm. because the dogs we learn pretty quickly, are not nice guys. They're enslaving the boars on the plains to, you know, work for them and not paying them back. It depends on how... And that's made, you know, abundantly, obviously clear. There is some ambiguity there because what happens is that they are trading with the boar men and the person who they're dealing with says, you know, you're not paying us enough. We've given you more than what you do. And Dunstan's father responds, this is what we agreed on. The explanation that he gives to his son afterwards is that the Bormen are planning to rebel. It's a known fact. Well, and they're trying not would, to be... Would, and they would be apparently justified because the guy they're trying to meet is whipping them with magic. magic because he attacks. Well, it does sort of suggest... And also, you know, the fact that they live in floating cities. Yeah, the, the noblemen floating above the people on the earth. That's right. a bit too there, There's something to that. I think it's a little more complex than that just because... There's something more to this world that's being hinted at. Yeah, yeah. In the course of reading the issue, you'll figure out pretty quickly what the thing is that they're hinting at. But it does seem to sort of throw the world as you perceive it for a loop. There's a very tricky balance when it comes to number ones. Because we've seen plenty of number ones that didn't do the work. In terms of offering enough that's familiar to us to make us want to come back, while also innovating. The design of the species and of everything that goes on is, on the one hand, new, and also like this twist that we're not going to talk about, but there also needs to be something that you can recognize, otherwise you have no reason to come back. This was the problem we had with Clarion. He goes into this space and it's completely undefined. Yeah, no rules, no explanations, no reason to care. I mean, here, it's a solid first issue. There's enough here that you can recognize as being tropes, as being things that are familiar, but on the other hand, it's Kurt Busiek. I know that he's not going to play it straight. I know that he's got, like, surprises up his sleeve. Let's do it. I'm here for this. Yeah. All right for Busiek. Yep. And let's go with the other image, number one, which is about human-animal hybrids. That turned out to be a weird coincidence, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, this is 
Yeah. The Humans, number one, by mm-hmm. Keenan Markle Keller and Tom Neely. Yeah. Tom, you suggested this, so you go first. I like, I loved it. Okay. Okay. It's about a gang of bikers mm-hmm. in the sort of 1970s, 1960s, I would assume. I think so. Yeah. And they're apes, monkeys. Yes. No, no, and, no they're apes. Yeah, they're apes. Okay. And this issue starts after one of their founding members apparently died. Mm-hmm. And it's a biker gang. Yeah, like, yeah. absolutely. And, yeah, it's a biker gang. And played they bury him. And they got into the struggle with a rival gang, and that's it. Yeah. So, plot-wise, this issue is thin. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a scene. But, I think what this issue shows is that with the proper attitude, you can get away with it. Because it appears that this series is all about the attitude. Like, at the end of it, you have, uh, you can go, to, they have to give this code to SoundCloud, and you can download the music made for the series. Oh, God. And it's 70s, you know, psychedelic rock and, and biker rock. <laughs> of and course it is. It's great. I, I love, I, A, I love the art. You okay. Know, in Tooth and Claw, I like the art for the storytelling. Here, I just love the art for the style. This thing is just so alive and popping and, and different. Okay. And I, I like the characters, you know, threadbare as they are. You have the poet of the gang doing the funeral uh, poem. Right. And it's an actually good poem. Yeah, it is. It's impressive that you know people actually write good poems for comics, and I love it. And I can admit the problems again. It's Fred Bear. It's it's lightweight on the plot to the point of being nothing. But it's that's not my problem with it. Okay. <laughs> so I, I okay. Your problems, yeah. I. Problems. What are they? No, that's not it at all. I'm reading this issue when I feel like I'm missing the joke. The biker gang has this funeral. And, you know, the tension breaks out into violence. Apparently, like in the last page, somebody comes back. I don't know. I didn't, it wasn't clear if it's the person they're burying or somebody else altogether. I don't know. That's what I understood from that. It's his brother or a family member. Because they say come back as if he's back from the dead. So Now, here's the thing. There apparently was an issue zero. Well, tough. Which was published. Tough for Keller and Neely. Yeah, the series was meant to be published independently. And Image liked the original issue so much that they say, no, no, no. Do it for us, please. And they didn't bother republishing the zero? Come on. That seems to be the thing. But my issue with this issue, (laughs) (laughs) my problem here is, okay, they're apes. Yes. That doesn't seem to have any relevance at all to what happens in the issue. If Keller is saying the fact that they're basically acting exactly the same, they are acting like a bunch of human bikers, is that implying that human bikers act like apes? Because if so... Mr. Keller, run! Run! I've seen Sons of Anarchy. You don't want to mess these people up. You know, it's not the first anthropomorphized reality we've seen. I mean, you read Yusagi Ujibo 20 years ago. But even, I'm thinking now, when there are deliberate decisions to anthropomorphize animals or to create animal-human hybrids, there's usually at least some kind of token acknowledgement of the animal side of that equation. Even in Tooth and Claw, there are elements there of, for example, the chief sorcerer who shuts down the rogue's uh, plan. He's, he's, he's a, a hawk. And like he yells at her with a hawk face. And it's very appropriate to the animal that he's emulating. Here, it's like, okay, they're apes. If they weren't apes, if they were humans, not a single thing would be different in the entire issue. It's not even about the plot. It's about the things that they do are human. 
So oh, they're called the humans. Well, okay, so they're called the humans, but they That's intriguing to but me. their rival gang also act like humans. They yeah. show up and but they're they strutting have, and they're they have different names. So that yeah, it's it's a smaller Why? hint than Tooth and Claw, but it says to me that the fact that they're called the humans that there is something more to that. No, because here I disagree with that because their rival gang are not called humans or they're called the scabs, I yeah. think. And they are acting exactly the same. Like there's no indication here that this gang is different in some way. If the rivals weren't there, then it would be, okay, maybe this is like a, a bunch of escaped apes who have a human intelligence, Planet of the Apes style sort of thing. That would be fine. I don't understand what's the point of them being apes. Why not? The, the question for me is not... It's not why, why not, it's why. Why, should, why, for, you know, why shouldn't they be robots? Why shouldn't they be zombies? Why, why shouldn't they be anything? Why not? No, I feel like I would need... Because that's the hook for this issue, right? The fact that they're apes. No, I think the hook is is the style. I think the hook but is the, the, style... the environment. I think the hook is all the things that you have in the background, all the attachments and, and the music, and it's supposed to be a package. You know, we've read stuff that is mostly about style. In those situations... You could always point to the stylistic elements that we liked or didn't like, depending on the comic, and be like, we can at least understand why they're there. Here, like, I read this issue, and it's like, why are they apes? It's the question that I keep coming back to, like, is there some relevance? Because... I think, I think we keep coming back whenever I choose a comic that I like, and you dislike it. It's always... You're asking the why, and I'm always like... Because! You know, <laughs> that might like be a pattern. Wait, like, not, not true though, because Tooth and Claw we're also disagreeing on, but the question isn't why there. It's, it's, you bring it up now, and, and now I, I agree with you that it has a lot in common with Saber Tooth Swordsman in the sense that the artwork projects a certain image, right? And yeah. the narrative is very, very the threadbare. The story rather than the other way around. Yeah. The plot is nothing to write home about. But in both of those comics, the question that I keep coming back to is, you're making these creative decisions. Is there a point to the fact that they're apes beyond the visual? I don't know yet. Is it story relevant? If you don't know by the end of the first issue, I'm not coming back for the second but issue. I don't care. That's the thing. Yeah. I don't care because I'm so in love with the rest of it. Okay. Why is the saber-tooth swordsman a saber-tooth? Because. Because that's the image that they got. No, you know what? Even that had more explanation than this issue. Why, why was, is he a saber-tooth swordsman? Why because... Was the, why was the villain, you know, a mastodon? Because so, he kept being changed by the giant god no, thing. No, no, the, the villain. The villain was a mastodon for no reason. Why not? Again, why not? Yeah, but in that case, I don't know. I guess the impression that I get here is, and, like, we're uh, supposed to draw some kind of okay. meaning. And what about the art? Again, like, I don't know... Okay. I, I Didn't speak to me. I it just didn't. The weird thing for me is that it's completely different from the Tom Lee. I know Tom Lee written and drawn The Blot. Okay. A terrific, you know, terrifying horror comics, which is completely different in style. And I'm like reading this and I'm, wow, this guy has range. So if nothing else. It's, I just, I don't know. Okay. I read it and I didn't, I didn't get it. If there's a joke here, I, I it's going know. over my head. I'm like Drax. You I'm know, not it's... laughing. I'm just loving. Okay. So, so our one, last issue yeah. is uh, Vertigo number one. Yeah. Uh, this one of is eight. It's a one of eight, yeah, miniseries. Uh, the Kitchen number one by Ollie Masters, art by Ming Doyle. Colored by? Colored by? Jody Belair. I missed that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Colored by Jodie Belair. There she is again. Yeah. Well, good for her. Get that money. So, flat out, I love this issue. I, I really did. I didn't really like it. We're having one of those episodes, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, so tell them the plot. All right, so 
It's Hell's Kitchen in the 1970s, and there are these three criminals who are running their own little minor scam. They're not part of the mob. They're just like uh, these three... Irish, you know, Irish Irish, gang. well, sort of like this mini gang. Yeah. You know, these three men, they're caught, they're sent to prison. Their wives have been living off this money that they've been bringing in, and now with their husbands in jail, Kath, her sister Raven, and their friend Angie decide that they need to keep up the collection process in order to survive because they're running out of money. Otherwise, they actually have to find a job. Right, and I mean, these are women who are gangsters' wives, mob right? Wives. Yeah, they're not. Well, they're not. Well, that's a plot point yeah. that they're not the mob. So, what I really enjoyed about this issue is that Ollie Masters is constantly reminding us of the fact that you know it's the 1970s. So, on the one hand, you do have around this period the major wave of feminism, the whole idea of, of equality coming in, and you have this concept of these three wives are deciding to take over their husband's criminal network. And yet, because it's the 1970s and because they are entering what is commonly perceived as, quote-unquote, the man's world, it doesn't go well for them. At least in the first issue. Kath seems to have some kind of breakthrough towards the end, although I'm not going to spoil it, but let's say they make a big, 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 big mistake. Yeah. Uh, for me, most of the good things about this issue, I don't think it's bad. I think the writing is mediocre mm-hmm. because it almost feels like a... A standard mob movie, only with here's the women in the main world. That's, that immediately that's, makes it non-standard. Yeah, no, but it's, it's not a thing. It's just a hook. Yeah. And, and for me, that's what Tooth and Claw is not. You know, because Tooth and Claw is like, you think it's a standard story, but it's not because of the things that we do. Not simply because they're animals. Mm-hmm. And here for me, the story, it's a completely standard plot, only they're women. And... That's it. Well... And it's not even a very good plot. It's sort of like... It's a 1990s mob movie cut to a comic size. I would disagree with that it's not only because... It's not a gender swap story, though, because... This is a situation in which the fact that they're women yeah. is plot relevant. Yeah, but I, the, I don't... It's, it works don't, against them. I don't really care for them that much. And I'm kind of worried of the fact that the book seems to not understand how terrible they are. I think it does. I think that, like, by the end of the first issue... No, by the end of the first issue, it's like, oh, you made a mistake, you're going to have to fight for That's it. not what but... it is. I'm going to try, like, to not spoil, but to elaborate no. a little bit on, on what happened. No, 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 okay, I think I understand what you mean. Something happens that is, like, on the one hand, completely predictable in the context that they're in. But on the other hand, Kath's reaction specifically takes her to a place that is I don't think that Masters is like glorifying what happens at the end. She does this thing that she think, should not I, have done. I don't think he goes deep enough into... For a first because, issue. Because the thing is, we're in a post-the-wire world of crime stories where you can't just copy out Goodfellas forever and ever. The Wire is contemporary, though. Yeah. Like I, I'm willing but, to accept certain tropes only because it's set in the 1970s and it's striving for... Some kind of historical okay, uh, let's parallel. Let's talk about the thing that I do really love. The, the art. art. <laughs> I knew now, you were going to yeah. say it. Yeah, I, it. Ming Doyle's art is amazing. See, There's no... The first time I saw Ming Doyle during a comic, she, you know, she had art pieces all over. That was Mara? Yes. That was her first one. The, the first one that I saw. I don't okay. Know. I, I think she appeared on the Jonathan Aikman. I wish that had been a better book. Yeah. Mara, you know, as the story was all about kineticism because the main hero was a beach ball? I think volleyball. Volleyball player? Yeah. And Ming Doll is a great artist, but 
not in a you know flowing super movement kinetic thing. Yeah. So she wasn't the right choice for that book. She was great mm -hmm. on the design. She was good on the acting. Not so good on the movement, which is a problem when your star again is a volleyball player. Here, the story plays to her strength. Mm -hmm. And the thing you said about the 1970s is what I like here because it's obvious that the main characters are meant to be glorious and good looking for their world, you know, I... from the point of view of the people in their world, you know, like because they're trophy wives for their men. Right, okay. Right? But to us, we can see it's not played up. It's not like Mad Men, oh man, how we love this age. Right. You know, because this is what Mad Men turned out to be. It's a fetishization of the 1960s. Yes. Here, it's, here is the 70s in their ugliness. Yeah. One of the first, you know, our introduction to Raven, the cat's sister, she's at home making this like soda, potato, really nasty concoction for dinner because these are Irish-American immigrants the horrific poverty that they went through. So, like, it's it's sort of subtle. It's this one-panel thing, but it does really drive your attention home to... And the far faucet hair. And the... Yeah. And it's not played up. That's what I like about it. It's subtle. It's, it's, yeah. It's, uh, I think, about the use of the prostitute characters in Moores and Campbell's From Hell, which yeah. was about... Which was important to find the balance between not playing them up as, you know, some glamorous femme fatale mm -hmm. or, you know, as poor, helpless victims. Here, they reach that same balance. And the characters I like, and their designs I like, I just, something is missing. And talking to you actually improved my opinion of this book. Oh. So, I'm... You're welcome, Ali. I'm not going to read it, I think, issue by issue. I am going to pick up the trade when it comes out. I okay. I mean, I'm going to keep going, because I feel I'm like... I'm not enough to wait for it on a month-to-month -month basis. I right. I think it's one of those reading one stories. You would wait until the reviews for the entire thing come out and yeah, then... Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's, that's fine. Maybe, that's you know, in eight... What? Eight, eight, eight months time, maybe we'll talk about it. Sure. We haven't done We can it review yet, the whole thing. But, you know, we're still a young podcast. Yep. Up and covers. We'll get there eventually. Yeah. Uh, our trade of, review. Yeah, speaking of trade reviews, our trade reviews, and we're going to talk about Loki, Agent of Asgard, Volume 1, mm -hmm. written by Al Ewing, art by, sorry, my computer is... Lee Garbett. Yeah, my computer seems to be a bit of a problem with uploading his comic files. This collects the first five issues. Five issues, yes. yes of the new Marvel ongoing look. Was ongoing, and then they had this whole... I would, I would like to go on a rant with your permission. Yes. Okay. Go on. Rent away. My problem with this book is everything around it. I'm going to say it. Trying to follow Loki's storyline has been one of the most frustrating experiences in Marvel now. Because I think we mentioned in an earlier episode, Journey into Mystery, right? Yeah. That was Kieran Gillen's. That was sort of like the first instance of Kid Loki, of the character that would eventually come to star in this book. And one of the things that I said was, I, I really wanted to like it, but every time it started getting momentum, it would be interrupted by a crossover or other. And you compared it at the time to Marvel's, you called it Marvel's Sandman. Yes, yeah, I always wanted to be. Okay. Tom. Yes. Imagine if you had read Sandman, yes. and you get to book nine, The Kindly Ones, yes. except that everything that had happened with Lyda Hall happened in a different book that you had not read. She comes to the dream world and she has this huge impact. She changes everything. You don't know who this person is. Because everything about her happened in a different book that you didn't read by a different writer. How would you feel about that? Odd. It would be weird, right? Right. Because I, so I'm trying to follow Loki and that was a mess. And then Gillen continued Loki's storyline in, in Young, Young Avengers, Avengers, which I read. 
didn't like. Didn't like for specific reasons that we're not going to get into. Again, so Loki has had this whole trajectory leading him into this series, right? It's Al Ewing taking over, Agent of Asgard. I started reading it. Again, I wanted to like it, right? This is Loki having been aged up from Kid Loki to, let's Tom be Hiddleston honest, age. Tom Hiddleston, right? Tom Hiddleston age. There's no secret about that. Yeah. The book opens with a shower scene. <laughs> this one's for the fangirls, and oh, fair I'm enough. Sorry, let, the book let him have with it. Thor being stabbed in the chest. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. That's such a low-key way to start it. I like it. Yes. So Al Ewing comes in, and to his credit, he does manage to retain the qualities that make Loki, as he's currently depicted, like thanks to Tom Hiddleston, you know, that make him such a compelling character. It was all going well until issue three, when older Loki shows up. Because that was the point where I'm like, who, what, why, how, I don't get it. I'm going to try and sum this up and tell me if I'm wrong because I legitimately don't know. Okay. So this whole thing, like Kieran Gillen's version of Loki started with Kid Loki who was a copy. The real Loki had died, I think, in... No, it in... was the copy of the reincarnation. It was a post-Ragnarok reincarnation. A post-Ragnarok reincarnation and the old Loki that we had had up until that point, I think, died in fear itself. Or I somewhere see. around Siege, no, maybe. No, it was before Fear Itself because the first Journey to Mystery Boots were time Right. So was it Siege? It, it might have been Siege then. Siege okay. Or... Oh, well, one of those. So yeah. the old Loki that we had known until then was dead. This kid Loki was around and he was supposedly like a more positive clean character. Sl- a clean slate. A clean slate. Yes. Gillen's run on Journey into Mystery ends Spoiler with... Spoiler to Journey into Mystery. It's been out for a yeah. while now. Okay. I'm justified spoiling it. And also, I mean, this yes. book spoils it. Okay. So yeah. what happens is... The original Loki, the villain that we had known since the Kirby days, kills the copy and takes his place. So we still have Kid Loki, but it's actually evil original Loki. Yeah, he used all the good deeds that Kid Loki has done Mm -hmm. to... To rebuild his reputation, and then he steps in. Okay, fine. So far, I'm with it. So original Loki is trapped in Kid Loki's body and gets aged up by Wiccan in Young Avengers, right? He, through manipulation, through lies... He gets a more sort of quote-unquote appropriate body. So, at this point, evil Loki is in pseudo-teenage Loki body and nobody knows. Fine, that's okay, I'm still with it. And in comes Al Ewing and he's like, no, there's another Loki and it's the evil original Loki and he's... No! Who is this person? He tells you. Who? It's the Loki from the future. Which future? What future? The, the, The whole point... Of the story is that Loki is always destined to return to the same spot. Which spot? The evil old Loki. The evil old Loki. Okay. Yeah, so it's you know it's using the same thing that Kieran did, which is the cycle of superhero comics is mapped out to the cycle of Ragnarok. Okay. You, can, you always return to the same thing, and Loki wants to escape. You know. The young version of the Kid Loki... Kid Loki wanted to escape. Original Loki didn't. Even Team Loki wanted to escape. No. Because he wanted to be a different kind of bad guy, maybe. Did he? From what I remember, at the end of Journey into Mystery, the whole point was for original Loki to come back so that people wouldn't know that he yeah, was back. They, he they never did. said that he wanted to do yeah, things but then, differently. but then there was, it was swiped in Young Avengers. Uh, in Young Avengers, the only thing that, I, that was there was... No, his plan was to get aged up. But he... And and take over Wiccan's okay, I, uh, I, I magic. Think, I think it I was. Think we remember it differently. We might Young be. Avengers ended a bit confusingly. Uh, only be, it, Young Avengers was confusing for the entire run, but 
because no, it's the introduction here specifically that sort of threw me because so this version of Loki is a future version of the character that we know, and he has the ability to go back and forth in time and set things up and do all of these things, and then he's Doctor Manhattan. It confused me so much. It frustrated me too because I liked where it was going. The idea of using Loki as like a supernatural caper kind of guy was brilliant. Okay, I think the problem is with this thing, and I still really, really like it. Okay, is that it set up the bomb too soon. The first arc should have been just Loki and solo missions, and yes. the whole playing with the origin thing should have been kept yeah. for later arcs. Yeah, it's too, like, I don't, this, this comes up in issue three. Like, yeah. I don't even know, not only does it come up in issue three, it comes up in the middle of whatever plan Loki's putting together to and, get Sigurd. And because Marvel had their whole original sin thing, which well, I read, I well. don't know if it's, if it's tied in. Or no, no, original has, sin, this was, around. this is the other reason why I'm quitting this, yes. by the way. Spoilers, I'm, I'm not going to keep reading this. What, ha- what happened was, this book precedes Original Sin. Yes. It has nothing to do with Original Sin as such. There are a few hints there that sort of set it up, but it's not plot relevant. Here's the problem, though. Loki, Agent of Asgard, number five, came out. Then there's Original Sin. Then there are four issues of Loki, Agent of Asgard, which directly tie into Axis. Loki number 10, which is solicited for January 2015, is supposedly the one that serves as a capstone. That So the whole thing with Kid Loki is going to come out into the open, right? All of the secrets that Loki's been hiding are going to be exposed, but it's still being portrayed as the aftermath to Axis. I don't want to read Axis. I'm not going yeah. to read Axis. My policy during crossovers is to just skip the crossover issues. That's half the book. That's a problem. But let's... I mean, Al Ewing, you know what? I'd be more tolerant of this if Al Ewing was actually writing Axis, but the idea that this book is going to be impacted by a writer whose most recent contribution has been to introduce a mirror version of Hulk calling himself Claw. I'm not kidding about that. His name is K-L-U-H Claw. That's what Rick Remender did. Who's who's doing uh, uh, Axis? It's Remender? Yes. Uh, When he's affected by Onslaught? He's the Claw version. No, I mean, th- this is what happened in Axis. A Hulk is affected by Onslaught and becomes Kla. Okay. Which is Hulk spelled okay, backwards. Let's, let's return to... That's my refusal to, to get back into it. So four issues of that, of this book paying homage... And I mean, it hasn't even had time yeah, to establish it, itself. That's the problem. And this is what happened with Journey into Mystery. It's the exact same I, trap. I don't agree because I think Journey into Mystery rolled with a crossover well. How? Things happened in that book that had a direct... Okay, biggest example I can think of, Thor came back. Thor had been dead at the start of Journey into Mystery, and this was actually kind of a thing for Loki. Yeah, he was. No. He was dead and gone. And Loki was like... uh, In the early, early issues of Journey into Mystery, Loki was actually impacted by that, and then Thor came back. Wait, he couldn't be dead because he started in the middle of fear itself, and Thorne died at the end of Fear Itself. Journey into Mystery came in at the end of Fear Itself, I think. Because in the, middle. the reason that I'm remembering this is because this was the issue that sort of drove me off Journey into Mystery. There's an issue in which Thor reunites with Kid Loki. And like one of the major character points for him is his brother's back. And he hadn't seen him in so long and he missed him. And, and like they, they actually hug at one point. Yeah. It's Loki and Thor. And Thor hadn't been in the book up until that point. The way that he reacted, I'm pretty sure he'd been dead. Either that or maybe it was tying into God of Thunder. I don't even know where, like, he was presumed dead. But for whatever reason. So this was a situation in which events concerning Thor in other books suddenly 
changed the entire story because like Loki, kid Loki in the early issues is able to get away with a lot because Thor isn't there to watch him. So he goes off and does all of these things. But then, you know, suddenly Thor's back and it's not something that happens in the context of Gillen's run. And here we have the exact same problem. I don't know what is going to happen in Axis to cause Loki to, you know, suddenly be exposed. But I'm not going to read Axis okay. to find out. Okay, here's the thing. Normally I would agree with you, but I think this one works well enough. And I like Elwing enough as a writer mm-hmm. for me not to care about it. Because the book starts gloriously. Yes. The first issue is great. Yeah, and so is the second. It, His worth, uh, encounter with Lorelai is... Just for the one... Page joke where Hawkeye is playing a video game, <laughs> and you have that line of "You have the army after you, and no health, and you're falling out of a crashing airplane." I know it's a bet fishing simulator. Yeah, that's a it's line to remember. Al Ewing is a good writer. Al Ewing I... is a great. Have you read his book? Book his fictional man novel? No, it's. I will Phil... get to that. It's a Philip K. Dick novel doing Philip K. Dick right, only with emotion. I'm not surprised that he's capable of that. I mean, again, th- this. Al Ewing is a very, very good writer. I wanted so much to be able to stick with this book. The point that breaks me is that that Sandman comparison, I'm, I'm sticking to it. Like, you know, imagine if not even Lyda Hall, but like, you know, okay, you're reading Transmetropolitan. Yes. Vita's assassination happens in a different book. No, they explain it well enough. They don't explain it. I think they, I think it, they no, did. No, you're reading Transmetropolitan. One issue, Vita's alive and she's meeting Spider-Jerusalem. The next issue, she's already dead. He's already gone through the whole thing and they never talk about it. They're just like, Vita's dead. You would feel like something is missing. But it's but different. Why is it different? It's different because it's a, it's a superhero title in a shared universe. Fine, take a superhero title. Let me think of like a really epic superhero title that stands on its own. Wow, that's a challenge. Grant Morrison's JLA. Grant Morrison's I never only, read all of only, JLA. Okay, Grant Morrison's New X-Men. Only not. Why not? Because if you don't know what the Phoenix is, it doesn't make any sense. And, and no, they explain what the Phoenix is. Well, Morrison... Okay, so Morrison's that's Morrison... That's Morrison retconning shooters retcon of Claremont. And, and if you don't read a lot of the internet things about, you know, what's the X uh, corporation, you have no idea what he's talking about. Because they no, but I'm talking about plot issues. events here. I'm talking about plot events. If you look at Grant Morrison's New X-Men as a unit... There's nothing there that happens in other books and suddenly, like, completely throws it off the rails. If anything, the opposite was true. Like, yes. New X-Men was influencing okay, the other Grant books. Morrison, uh, so, in that case, Grant Morrison was the recriminator. You know, right. He was the... Yeah. It's a thing that happens. Okay, let's... I accept that it happens, but this is a new book that serves as a follow-up to two other books that had the exact same problem. That's why I'm saying, like, Loki, when you try to follow Loki's story... You can't. It keeps being interrupted by all of these other writers who, quite frankly, aren't as good. Al Ewing is a hell of a lot better as a writer. Okay. Al Ewing would not do Clue. Clue. I mean... I think Al Ewing would do He it. wouldn't do it. <laughs> and and if he did... Avengers. But if he did do it, it would be a parody. It wouldn't be, you know, his skin turns yeah, black that, and he has a white mohawk and says... Al Ewing wrote Zombo and the second volume of Zombo gave us... Almost the anti-zombie. But it was a joke. <laughs> it was a joke. We weren't supposed to take it seriously. We were supposed to take close seriously. Uh, well, apparently Remender thinks so because this is like, you know. <gasps> I can't take anything Remender does seriously. That's well, why did Franken. Yeah, but in, but in that I situation, you're laughing. Is a joke. You're laughing at him. You're not laughing with him. <laughs> Al Ewing. Okay. I wish he. And again, like, I'm not blaming Ewing for this because this has got to be editorial. I don't. It has to be. Because look at issue three, which is the one you had the biggest problem with. Yeah. Because it introduces a character out of concept. 
the actual issue, again, I, I'm using the seven comparison as a one standoff retelling of a legend to examine ideas of space and time. Yes. It's great. And it leads perfectly to what they're doing with Sigurd in issues four and five. Except that had it been self-contained, it would have been current day Loki doing this and not older future Loki because the first thing they do is to set up who this Loki is now. But then, by bringing in the older Loki in issue three, it's like, well, who who are you? Like, there's even, I think it's even the first issue, like the very first issue, there's a flashback to the murder of Kid Loki, right? That I am the crime that will not be forgiven. So we know immediately, like, okay, this is the situation. And then old Loki comes in and starts dropping hints about Angela, because clearly, you know, that's what I need right now. And it's just... They don't spend enough time with Loki. It's like, why are we with older Loki now telling a story about the forging of a sword that was relevant two issues ago and going into this whole meta text about like, you know, I am the god of stories, so I can rewrite my story and I can do this with stories and that with stories. And it's like, well, if you could do that, you would have already won. Like, but what's... Does, but he doesn't want to win. That's the end point. What do you mean he doesn't want to win? He realizes that he can't win because... Says who? Says him. His point in the story is to always that, lose. That seems a little convenient. Like why? It's I just don't again, get it. Again, Sandman. I don't get What's it. Sandman Sand- never did this. What's the end of Sandman? The which one? The Tempest or the one? Oh, Exiles. You're thinking of Exiles, where okay, the issue of the guy who is encountering two versions of Dream simultaneously at different points in time. Okay. Okay, that is self-contained and that's clear. Because we have already encountered both versions of Sandman, and we know who they are. Here, it's like, okay, so old Loki is a future version of current Loki, who is actually original Loki in the body of a teenage Loki who we killed and replaced. I mean, when you lay it out like that, his Wikipedia entry must read like Ikea manuals. Like, I don't even know what it would look like. People like him. People like him because he's... Okay, Ewing is very consciously doing Tom Hiddleston Loki, right? He's sarcastic. He's funny. This was something that Gillian's Young Avengers uh, version of Loki did that too, right? He flirts with Prodigy and he's constantly like dropping these... And he calls himself Tyrion Lannister from Game of Thrones. Like, I'm Tyrion! You watch Game of Thrones, right? I'm Tyrion! He actually says that. The character is compelling. I just wish that Marvel could let him be... The access tie-in is the deal breaker for me. Like, I'm not going to wait four issues and then come back after Rick Remender has already done his thing. I'm just, I'm not going to do that. I, I, well, I wish. Garment. We talked about everything around it. We haven't mentioned his art. His art's amazing. Not amazing. It's very good. It's good. Yeah. He's a very good storyteller. Yes. You know, he keeps to the basics. Again, his design for Mephisto is great. You yeah, know. I loved it. Yeah. And I agree with you that. I don't dislike this version of, you know, what they're doing with it. I do agree they did it too early. It's a series that was forced by editorial to jump the gun on what appears to be a long-term plot. The first trade... I hope so. Because... Because when we're doing all of these things, you're sort of thinking, okay, this woman who can see straight for the truth. Verity? Verity. Yes. Verity. And again, you can sort of see the things you've explained with, because... Truth and lie are important yeah. to the character and they're important to the story. And Loki Even... always tries for deception and always sort of falls through. It might also be that I, that the expectation set up in the first few issues 
end up not playing out the way you think. Because from the first issue, I assumed that the point of the story was that the All-Mother were using Loki as like this spy yes. and the supernatural caper that, that he plans, you know, like to break in and to do this. And he recruits Thor and he recruits uh, Lorelai. And, he, you know, so he is making use of these as guardian characters as sort of like this supernatural spy sort of thing. That is a book I would have wanted to read. I would have liked it. And then... Then old Loki, book. yeah, like old Loki shows up. Like as as soon as old Loki shows up, I no longer understand what this story is about. Like, I what is Agents of, it, of Asgard it about? Me of the reaction a lot of people had to the No Country for Old Men, the movie, because oh. you know people fought for the first uh, two thirds. Oh, it's a crime thriller, it's a chase movie, and then at the end it becomes something completely different, and everybody's like. What are you doing? Yeah. Why you had a completely good? Like, I don't, and I disagree because I really like No Country for Old okay. Men, and I really like this. I just feel like there's this disjunction because if you took issue three out of the trade, and you read one, two, four, five, and you took out also in five the encounter with Old Loki, what this book presents, like in terms of Al Ewing's plot, is that's two fifths of the story. Okay, but but no, I'm saying <laughs> you like took out two of take the story. take out specifically anything to involve Old Loki. What is the story then? So the story is All Mother recruit Loki. To complete missions for Asgard in order to like clean his slate. If which... you take Doc Manhattan out of Watchmen, it's a mundane uh, mystery story with people in costumes. Not really, because like what? And again, old Loki is basically Doctor Manhattan because he exists in all places and all times. He can sleep in and out of stories, and his major True. point is that he cannot. He says, "Whatever I do, I always play out the story that's been pre-written. Right. I cannot change my destiny." And yet. This clashes with the original premise because in the first issue, what the All Mother tell him is, for every deed you do that that we assign to you, like every mission you complete, we're going to erase one of your past deeds until you have a clean slate again. So I, I think that's the problem. Like that premise is more compelling to me than the idea of old Loki not wanting to beat history, but coexisting with his present day version for. Dot dot okay, dot. Okay, like, I, I see don't... what you're doing there. You just want an excuse to rewatch my name is Earl. That's okay. That's okay. I I've like never this. actually seen that. It's about a guy who's every day, every episode, he's trying to erase one misdeed of his history. Not because of God, you know, because he, somebody explained to him the concept of karma. He uh-huh. said, I'm going to make a list of all the bad things that I've done, and every episode I'm going to make it up to someone. It's a really funny show. Not really what I'm going for here. Oh, okay. I because what you were setting up. No, because the issue, like, it's the fact that the All Mother are, they're telling him what to do. It's not like he's choosing to do this on his own. He's receiving missions. So, like, that, that format of, you know, being instructed to do things that are challenging. I mean, the first issue is like, so take this sword and go stab Thor. <laughs> go do this thing. Yes. They could have set up, like, a lot of interesting concepts with that. And now, of course, speaking of, of impact, right? The All-Mother are no longer in charge of Asgard, because oh. Odin's back now. Oh, right. We reviewed Thor. That's another shake-up that will probably... Because Odin is mentioned in the solicitations for Loki number 10. This is a huge event that affects Loki that doesn't happen in the book. I don't... It, it's This is Journey into Mystery all over again. Peter David made up with worse. In his Peter, X-Factor run. Peter David used to be better at that, though. X-Factor acknowledged House of M and Second Coming and, and all of that. But I remember his Incredible Hulk run lasted through most of the 90s, so he had to put up with a lot of crap. Yeah. Every time he just like, you know, eh, sidestepped it, just sort of like, yeah, so this thing is happening, not important, let's get back to our work. Which, I'm buying a book. I am not buying a universe. 
especially given cover prices today. Four ninety nine. No, thank you. Can't we get another Zombo book instead? Look, you never have this problem with 2000 AD, right? Nikolai Dante is not suddenly going to cross over with Grey Suit or, or whatever. Well, I've, I've read the ABC Warriors Warlock, you know, Redlock? Not Warlock. Oh, Warlock. boy. Oh, Nemesis the Warlock. Yeah. Ah, no. Hello, Pat Mills. Wow, Pat Mills was a crazy weirdo. Did you know that he wrote, I don't know why I'm remembering this just now, but he did um, Fall of the Hammer for 2099. No. Marvel I didn't, 2099. I didn't know. Woo! I think he did Ravager. I, I don't remember. No, no, I think Stanley did Ravager. I don't know. I don't I know. Stanley did. I missed 2099. No, you don't. That was you a good imprint. You, you no. Think you missed I reread the original Spider-Man 2099 a while back. It still holds up. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that 90s imagination of the future. Uh, but it, it holds up as a story and so does It's d- the future. Doom. We have laser discs. Best treatment of Doom, though? The War and Alice Doom. Be- I, I don't... John Francis Moore, I think, came before War and Alice. And the two of them together? Amazing. Josh Trant, that's how you do Doom. He's not an angry blogger. In the future. In the future, yeah, sure. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, anyway, so we... Loki, Agent of Asgard. If... I'll say this. The book has a lot going for it. If you are already reading Axis, and if you're already reading the you know original sin and like all of these events that have impact on the book and you're okay with that this is a good read if you're like me and you're like i do not acknowledge Axis in any way shape or form i'm not reading anything that ties into Axis. i don't want it then it's for all the the good things about this book it's hard for me to recommend it because you can't have a complete reading experience I agree. Uh, you should probably only read it if you have already been through Journey into Mystery slash Young Avengers slash yeah, whatever, whatever else. If Journey into Mystery did not shake, like, if it didn't throw you off the tracks at some point and you made it all the way to the end and you still liked it, then this is a book for you. Okay, I think that was it. Yep. We certainly had a debateful episode. <laughs> Every now and then we have one of those episodes where we don't agree yeah. on anything, and I love yeah. it. You can see, you know, but me and Sean are now holding hands on each other's neck and squeezing yes. and squeezing. I got a knife, he's got a gun. <laughs> our next episode may or may not happen. Uh, no, it'll be fine. To we'll, our silence. We'll be back. <laughs> silence and, like, gurgling for... <gasps> Until we find a good call sign, I'm yeah. Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. And we'll see you again. And for the smorgasbord, bon appétit. I'm going to stick with that until I come up with something better. I I can't. Like, I've been racking my brain and.